Thank you for tuning in to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast, brought to you by a student staff partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host, Kyra, and for this episode, I'll be in conversation with Manalini Greed-Harry, a professor at Laurentian University in the land we now call Canada. Her research is largely anchored in English, but has developed to include interest in historical and organisational questions about English as an academic discipline. In this interview, we delve deeper into Renalini's upbringing, her recent article, and how we can begin to decolonise English curricula. Hi, Renalini. Thank you so much for being here today. I've been looking forward to having you as a guest on the podcast. And how are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you for asking. <laughs> so I like to start things off with the guests telling us a little bit more about themselves. So first things first, where are you from? Oh, gosh, that's such a complicated question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I don't know why I'm so taken aback by that. I should have um, prepared. Uh, I am from a lot of places. I was born in Mauritius, which is where my father's family is from. And my parents came to England when I was a baby. And I went to school in England until I was a teenager when my parents decided to go to Canada. And then I spent most of my teenage years and my undergraduate years in Canada. Uh, I'm a master's degree, I did my master's degree in Canada. And then I came back to the UK uh, to do my PhD, hoping to stay here. Um, uh, but then, you know, you try things and, and life says something else to you. <laughs> uh, so I've been sort of between between the UK and Canada ever since my, my PhD, because I, I got my first um, job, uh, my current job, <laughs> in, uh, in Canada in about 2008. So I've been coming and going uh, since then. And just going back to um, your childhood, like how would you describe your upbringing, like in terms of how race was kind of seen and felt in your household? I, I'm, I'm really, I find it really interesting that you asked that question um, because I do think it's really important to think about your formation in those terms. And I think people take it for granted a little bit that oh well I was this and I always knew I was this and, and that's how I, I've lived my life and and um, I would say some things are a little bit un, perhaps a bit more unusual in my family so my my family by ethnicity is South Asian uh, and as I said my dad's family is from Mauritius uh, so di- diaspora diaspora Indian um, but my mom is from South India and uh, from a religious minority in South India too. And so I think I grew up, certainly from my mum's family, uh, with people very dark-skinned, and there's a lot of colorism and anti-blackness in South Asian culture. Uh, My mum grew up herself uh, with a strong sense of being an outsider and what it's like to be an outsider in, in India. And so when I was growing up, I think perhaps somewhat un, a bit more unusually, maybe, than, than a lot of South Asians in the UK, um, we talked about it a lot. 
and it was something that was part of my consciousness that um you know think things can happen to you uh for no fault of your own um and my parents experienced all, all kinds of things in their daily work lives too i remember uh some of my parents were both uh doctors who worked in the nhs and um you know my dad would come home from work on the bus and and um he discovered little holes in his suit because because kids had been burning cigarettes into his suit simply you know simply because of, of who he was what he looked like um so i think i grew up with a sense of how can i put it a sense that things there are things to watch out for i'll put it that way mm. um but mm. but also at the same time um interestingly i think again in a south in a south asian context where there, as i said there is colorism um my mom was the person with the darker skin and um and i grew up in a household where there was a very strong sense that um there was nothing to be ashamed of about who you were and what you looked like mm. um because i think i didn't experience when i sometimes when i hear my peers south asian peers especially in the uk talk about things i think oh that i never experienced that i never experienced a certain sense of feeling like i had something to make up for Mm. I guess is how I would put it. I I definitely had a sense of things I had to watch out for, but not things I had to feel bad about in myself. So do you feel like being kind of conscious, I guess from such a young age and like being able to have those conversations and see those things unfortunately, you know, happen to your parents and see what they experienced. Do you feel like that kind of maybe looking back now like as an adult like you can say how you can appreciate kind of being in the know of these things but do you think at a young age that kind of hindered your kind of your choices and kind of the opportunities that you might have went for like growing up i think that i have to put an important kind of caveat into what i said which is that you know i grew i grew up in a middle class home in that sense mm. in the sense that both my not that my parents were because my dad wasn't but my my parents were in middle class occupations and so i think there was a lot of class privilege that kept things kept certain kinds of things smooth um but i have to say uh, i guess we will get on to this but you know uh, i'm a person who studies english literature and uh, i did encounter at various points in my education uh, people who sort of suggested to me that that's not really an appropriate thing for you to be studying um mm. not that i wouldn't be good at it necessarily but that you know that's just not something brown people do mm. um and so i think it it probably did take me not very much but it took me slightly longer to think no i like doing this i'm going to i'm going to do this um but i think but i think because of the certain because of the class privilege certainly i wouldn't i wouldn't say i wouldn't i i don't think it would be accurate to say that i experienced kind of um the idea that there are things i wouldn't be able to do like that i wouldn't be able to go to university for example mm. um 
but I, yeah, I think it's more in this, this sort of streamlining, like, yes, you can go to university, but you should study medicine. Mm. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Um, people, people said that to me, they still say it to me. Um, when they find out, oh, you work in a university and you have a PhD, are you, you know, are you a scientist? Are you an engineer? Um, and when you say back to them, no, I'm a literature professor, they just sort of, they're like, oh, that's a bit weird. <laughs> it's like that awkward, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so could you share a bit more about your university experience? Like, what did you study and um, where? I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Saskatchewan, which is where my parents, my parents had gone to, to Saskatchewan, Canada. I, I did enter to study, um, to study sciences and to go into, into medical school, actually, uh, because it wasn't, it wasn't a burning desire that I really had. Um, and in my second year, a uh, couple of things happened. One is that I took an English class my first English class. Um, and the professor actually did take me aside and say, after about the first week, I think, she was a, uh, she was a retired professor. She taught a class just sort of, uh, to, to help the department out. And um, she said to me, uh, what do your parents do for a living? And I told her. And she said, yeah, I think you should do that. That's what, pe- that's what, uh, that's what you people are good at. I thought, okay, I have to drop this class, right? Because I just thought there's no way I'm going to spend my time trying to convince this person that, you know, that I should, I mean, I was a second year student, that I should even be in a classroom um, studying English literature. That was a, that was a medieval literature class. Um, so there were moments like that where I just thought, okay. But also in the middle of my second year, my father died. And, um, you know, it puts things in perspective. And you think, okay, I have to do what I have to do. And so I switched. I did switch to an English course. Uh, um, I switched to studying literature then. And I, and I loved it. Every other professor I encountered... Um, was absolutely encouraging and I and I loved the subject I just really enjoyed the material I enjoyed being in the library I enjoyed talking about literature um and so that that was a great experience and actually when I finished my undergrad (laughs) coincidentally my professors who had been teaching me medieval literature because obviously I'd put that course off since I had Mm. the, the negative experience um, were among the most helpful in helping me to get to grad school. Uh, oh. Really supportive, really wrote letters for me, helped me out. Um, and I had a very clear sense from then that I wanted to go and do a master's degree in English. And when I did my master's degree is when I discovered uh, that there were other things about literature that were really interesting, like thinking about colonialism and race more colonialism than race um but but yeah I think that's when I really got hooked because I hadn't I hadn't been taught any of those things really as an undergraduate so I I had a very um 
in Canada, we study our undergraduate degree for four years and I had an honours degree. So I, <laughs> I did a thing that I think not that many English students do anymore, which is that I literally went through from the beginning to the current moment. I studied every single period of English literature, every genre, every form. It was a very thorough, thorough education. We never talked about colonialism or race. And now, obviously, currently you are based at Laurentian University in the land we now call Canada. And I'm aware that this university is kind of special. Like, I mean, the location, you're situated on like traditional land of the, I'm trying to not, I'm trying to pronounce this correct. So correct me if I'm wrong. It's Atekomeksheng Anishnaubek. So I... Can I have to say well done to you for attempting that because my pronunciation is is, is <laughs> no in no way uh, better. Um, so, but yes, we are we are on we are on traditional lands. Uh, and um, yeah, sorry, you were going to go somewhere with that with with what. I was just going to say, well, you're obviously situated there and the institution also like prides itself on being kind of dedicated to like, you know, the development of programs and like partnerships that contribute to kind of the advancement of like indigenous communities and worldviews. And I was just going to say the question kind of what is your role within the university? And you could also mention kind of the things you do outside of formal teaching as well. This is, this is a really difficult moment at which to answer that question because, mm. yes, it is true that Laurentian has, take, has in the last maybe five to, five to six years taken, taken a kind of a leadership position in uh, indigeneity in, in Canadian universities. Um, which is very important because, of course, colonialism is ongoing in Canada. Mm. Um, but uh, this spring, the university went through a very serious financial collapse. And in the course of that, uh, almost all indigenous programming was cut. Mm-hmm. Um, but not pro- I shouldn't say it that way. It's not programming. Staff, indigenous faculty and staff who had dedicated, you know, had had been seriously dedicated to the project of indigenization at the university uh, were let go. Um, and the university basically backtracked on its commitments, public commitments that it had made. Um, to Indigenous education, and um, so it's a very awkward moment. It's a a very awkward moment to be answering that question. Um, I think, so I, you know, from from perspective of uh, post-colonial politics and decoloniality, you know, there's nothing more important really than indigenization of the university. Mm. From an organizational point of view, there is a way to do it uh, and it, it takes much I think it takes much more preparation much more grounded understanding of what is it the people who have been working at your university have been doing actually 
already towards these things. You can't just bring kind of things in. And I think this applies to decolonizing in the UK too, to be honest, right? You kind of have these moments where organizations become very invested for one reason or another in something that they think is important, but also looks good politically. And then they just want to do it. And they just want to put it on top of everything and say, you know, we're committed to this, we're doing this. And of course, you know, structurally, they are more or less prepared to be doing that. And I would say that one of the things we've suffered at Laurentian is that there was a lot of will, goodwill, but there wasn't a lot of structural preparation. And so what I mean by that is, you know, you, you, for example, you can't just bring in the most highly qualified indigenous academics unless you have prepared a community to receive them. Otherwise, they have to deal with a tremendous amount of stress and burden as individuals who are sort of made, you know, responsible and, and tokens for, um, yeah. for a structural process. So I think, you know, I think that's, that's very difficult. And I, and I, and I think it's, that's definitely happened at Laurentian. Um, mm. So it's sort of <laughs> to kind of reel it in a little bit more towards me. I was hired in my department to do postcolonial stuff. And I've really loved doing that there in that location. I've really loved working with my students. Um, they're, the, they're definitely the best thing about the job. But it, my experience has been that, that, for example, that work never really connected with, for example, the university's strategic aims with its ideas about, we've never talked about decolonizing at Laurentian, interestingly, we always talk about indigenization. Mm. And I'm curious what the difference in, the, in those vocabularies mean. Because, because I think, because in my department, there had been people for, many, for already for many years who had been teaching about the connections between colonialism and literature, for example. But those things didn't necessarily get hooked up with indigenization. And I think that's a missed opportunity. I think that's a missed opportunity in the institution that doesn't understand, oh, what have we been doing towards these goals before? Rather than just thinking, oh, we need to bring in new people and we need to do this thing yeah. you know, on, on kind of on top of things. Mm. Um, so I think I think there was that, but it, but I have to say also, Laurentian, there have been other opportunities. I've been involved with the Palestine Solidarity Working Group, and so outside the classroom, mm. again working with students on on and other faculty members on on causes of you know on on causes that relate to colonialism still going on right now in the mm. world that we live in. So it's been a very it is a very interesting location for that kind of work actually yeah. um yeah I, and i think there's a lot of need and a lot of potential but i think the financial collapse that happened this spring my feeling is that that's going to be used to retreat mm. from a lot of the things that we gained yeah and i think i mean we've had conversations in kind of our own meetings that like for the project um and we've also had a guest speaker from um canada um 
previously and we kind of talk about this kind of difference between like indigenization and decolonization and why it's more decolonizing in the UK and then what we refer to as decolonizing is kind of indigenization in the land we now call Canada and I think it's probably out there I can only speak from my um, um, own kind of perspective but I feel like in colonies like Canada decolonization it's really to do with kind of the land and giving that back which is so much more difficult to do than indigenization where it's kind of like we're kind of changing our thinking we're changing the way we see um systems and things like that I think it's more it's kind of the difference between kind of like total kind of reconstruction and then just making like reforms here and there and I think that that is probably one of the differences that we kind of pick up and we've noticed as well is that something that you kind of see and experience definitely definitely um I think I think you, you I'm sure you've seen it yourself that even with decolonization there's a kind of a there's a sense that um there's a there's a sense that that a lot of people would be content with relatively tame reform mm. whereas what is needed is really full-scale restructuring and I think I think that's I think that's true anywhere that you have indigenous and um and black and and populations of color who are who want to um you know speak back to a system um and the system says yeah okay you can have you can have a little bit we, we are paying attention. We will, we will put your slogans on our press releases mm. um, and on our brochures to recruit you to our institutions. But um, yeah, I think, that, I think that is probably, I mean, one, I was thinking about it. One of the good things I think about having so much conversation around decolonization and indigenization is that you that there's an opportunity to say this that there's an opportunity to push past the performativity a bit and say well yes it's great that you're all talking but what are you doing mm. um that's a very 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 thin silver lining <laughs> but i'm trying to find you know, some sense of it we are we are having more volume of conversation um and so perhaps that is going to lead to structural change in ways that we maybe we couldn't have imagined I couldn't have imagined I mean to be in, in that sense to be fair I couldn't have imagined the institution I work in now when I was an undergraduate you know if I think about a professor I'm sure it happens but if I think about a professor now saying to a black or brown or indigenous student I don't think you should really be here in my classroom I think there would be natural outrage about that whereas you know 20 odd years ago it was kind of like oh well you know yeah you're gonna face some stuff like that just ignore it and keep on moving so it is it is changing but yeah that that deep structural change is, is I don't know how we get there hmm. and just um thinking about um how you've also worked in universities in Finland and the UK what kind of comparisons could you draw up in terms of the response to kind of like race and coloniality and maybe you could like divide your answer into what you noticed in your students and then kind of in faculty it's it's quite interesting because uh, I I've taught such different student populations mm. and and 
and that's what really makes a difference when I so when I um when I was a PhD student I was a PhD student at Goldsmiths College and so I was a I was a tutor there and my classrooms were largely black and black and Asian people and they were people who wanted to know about these things you know uh, they they were interested in, in questions about race and colonialism because they all, because we always have been we've always been interested in the questions whether anyone was teaching us about it or not um, and those classrooms were so different um, because when I arrived in Canada for example my classrooms were completely working class first generation white settlers it's a completely different classroom to be teaching. Um, in Finland, the, the situation is a, a, a bit more complicated. And, and then it's, there's a great deal of interest in questions of, of colonialism and race. But at that time, when I was teaching in the University of Helsinki, there wasn't necessarily the sense that that was a problem that the I'll put it this way. I think it, there was a sense that that problem was something that was from, from far away. It related to others. It related to other societies, other histories. It wasn't really about Finland. I think that would be different now. Mm. Um, I think that would be very different um, because there is a general awareness that these things are actually more linked um, than we've, we've talked about them before. Um, but in terms of the faculty, that's a more difficult question to answer. Um, you know, at Goldsmiths, um, there was a recognized speciality, I guess, in, in post-colonial studies. So there were a lot of professors who were about that. And there was an understanding that that was an important thing to be studying. It was part of Goldsmiths brand. It still is in some ways. Yeah. Um, and I think that was less true when I arrived in, in my university in Canada. And then there's always that interesting divide between, you know, you could be teaching about colonialism and not touch the subject of race. Weirdly, I, I mean, I'm not really sure how that's possible, but I know that it is possible. And, and so for example, um, I've definitely worked in places where people were very interested in your academic speciality that, oh, right, you study post-colonial theory, you know about these things, but weren't necessarily interested in talking to you about race or even in acknowledging the dynamics of race in your classroom, in your own experience of the institution. So there's a kind of weird fault line there, I think, between race and colonialism. And I think now we're talking more about race than we, than we have ever done in the university, really, openly, in, in any university. Why do you feel like there are these parallels, like thinking about Canada, Finland and the UK? Like, do you really, do you think it's just a kind of matter of location and like the students that you teach? Or do you feel like it's even rooted in colonialism itself? Like the UK being a kind of country that is the coloniser, Canada being a country that has been colonized, do you feel like that is the kind of difference? There are definitely those differences. So I think, and so I think one of the difficulties about answering the question of, you know, what's different in each location is 
that there's all there's a dynamic between several things and i think the, the main things are um yeah as you said you know whether the country itself has been a colonizing power uh so in the uk definitely it's been a color it's the colonizer so there's a different context for teaching about that in canada you have this weird thing where they're colonized they've been colonized and they continue to colonize so there's a kind of mm. there's always a difficulty there of thinking well what are we what are we going to talk about when we talk about canada in the context of, of for example post-colonial studies and then finland finland has been colonized mm. for many years fin most of finland's uh history in the last uh in, well, in the years before independence, the sort of six, seven hundred years before independence were of being colonized. But of course, they also have their own indigenous people who remain in a colonial relationship to the Finnish state. So again, there's complexity there. The complexity there, I think, is in the use of the language. So that's and I, I really want to make clear, you know, I was teaching in, in Helsinki in 2000 and from 2003 to 2008. So that's it, it is a it is a different historical moment. I think the things that we talked about then um it's not the same now. It wouldn't be the mm. same now. There's more consciousness, there's more willingness to talk about Finland in terms of colonialism. Although I think it would still be somewhat controversial to put it in those terms. But so there's that, you know, there's the country's own background, there's the particular students you encounter in your classroom and their relationship to colonialism. My students at Laurentian, they are, the ones I teach now especially, they are of a moment where these things are talked about around them and they know that they don't know things and they want to know and they're keen to find out and they're critical and they're willing to let go of um, you know, things that even for students, even 10 years ago, that might have said, really, is it colonialism so bad in Canada, really? Mm. Um, so there's that, the student population. But then I think there is also this layer of, um, if I can call it this, kind of academic, well, your discipline, really. So, for example, when I was a PhD student, my PhD supervisor was a was a very well-known post-colonial scholar called Bartmore Gilbert. And um, so there's a certain amount of prestige attached to that, right? You're, you're a student at a London university, your supervisor is a well-known post-colonial scholar, post-colonial theory is, you know, has its kind of aura of being theory and difficult and philosophy mm. and all those things. That's another part of it too, where people think, oh, this is academically important to study. And it makes you, you know, it's a sign that your university is on the cutting edge, right? Mm. You've got, oh, you've got a post-colonial specialist. Um, that's old language, you wouldn't use that now. Um, and that, but that plays its part in it too, right? In terms of, in terms of how much people are paying attention and what they want to talk about. And I think that is a, that's a difficulty. I think that's part of the difficulty between uh, race and colonialism. 
colonialism, studying colonial history, being a person who does post-colonial theory, that's, that has had a kind of regular disciplinary value for a while. Hmm. Studying race is always hard. It's always a little bit more difficult to get people to acknowledge the intellectual depth and capacity it takes to study race properly as an academic and not just to have an opinion about it. And I would say that's something you still actually kind of encounter now that, you know, notwithstanding histories of race and sociology and um, anthropology, you know, kind of critical investigations of race from all kinds of disciplines, you know, African-American studies itself, ethnic studies, there's still this kind of feeling that, well, you're just talking about something that has to do with your own life and it's not really rigorous. It's not, you know, it's not deep. And it is. It's a, it's a tremendous body of knowledge. And just thinking kind of structurally, what do you think are some of the issues that like post-colonial research still faces in kind of higher education? And you might be able to just answer this from, you know, your own experience and doing, carrying out your own research. I think that's, it's a, it's a connected again, a little bit to what I, what I said a bit earlier that, you know, there come these moments when institutions and then of course funding agencies are profoundly interested if you use the right word. So now if you use the word decolonization, um, post-colonial is actually a very passe word now. People don't really use that. Um, uh, that would be the subject of a whole other podcast. Um, but um, so it's, it's kind of tricky because um, if you put the right word on things sometimes, then people are interested in funding them and giving you the resources. Again, the question becomes, I think, to, to me, the problem is that organizations and funding agencies too, I think, have such a kind of short memory. So, so they're just thinking, oh, you're using this word now. I'll give you some resources to do something. They're not thinking, well, who's actually been working on this? What's actually been done? What is the deeper history and knowledge of this? Um, so I think, I think that's one aspect and so I think there are yes still a lot of researchers who are not funded because they can't hitch the real and deep analysis they do to the words that are now being used or the way that organizations and funding agencies want to tackle the problem right they have their own ideas about again what kinds of things do they want to see done, not what kinds of things actually need doing and should be funded? I think, I think the other thing about research in general, though, and I think this speaks more to the, to the kind of general, the general marketization of academia, is that some of these things, they don't actually need money, they need time. They need people to be having the time and the, and the space to go away and think deeply about things. And that's not really uh, um, available. But one third thing I will say, I'm, I'm working right now with a group of colleagues on a special issue on race and coloniality in, in, in the workplace, in work and organizations. And so for example, 
one of the difficulties we've encountered because we've been sending papers out for review during the pandemic is that of course we want our authors to be peer reviewed by people who um, who understand their work in many ways and so you're putting more and more pressure all the time on the very academics who are already overburdened so younger black women academics women of color and asking them to do the review work so that you can get that, that kind of scholarship published and so there's a very small pool of people trying to do all the work and, and the very people who don't get the most resources and don't get the most help from the organization so I think that that's one thing that is very much on my mind at the moment because um you know I just I <laughs> I know those are the best people to do that work, to do those reviews. And yet I also know those are the people I don't want to put more burdens on. And so in post-colonial, in literary post-colonial studies in the UK, probably more broadly, um, the reality is that there are still very, very few black and brown people doing that which sounds weird, right? You'd think that's an area that there would be, but so we do need, we do need more, we need more academics who are in a position to do that kind of work, I think. I wanted to dedicate this section of the podcast to talking about your recent article, The Limits of Literature as Liberation, Colonialism, Governmentality and the Humanist Subject. And this particular debate was pretty new territory for me, but I think your writing in this paper really helps to kind of break down and contextualise kind of literature and its perceived purpose in both like post-colonial, decolonial studies and of course management and organisation studies as well. But when did you actually begin to kind of piece this paper together and what inspired you to kind of study literature and think about how it can be a tool for colonisation but also liberation? That part is easy to answer because that actually goes back to my under my graduate studies. So when I was a master's student when I, I discovered postcolonial studies when I was a master's student, it's what I wrote my master's thesis about. Um, and it was sort of accidental. Uh, I was at a conference and I was listening to people give papers about a postcolonial theorist called Homi Baba. And, um, and that's when I really started thinking about the relationship that colonialism has to literature as a form of knowledge. Um, and so that's, 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 I would say that's probably central to my work in my own mind, uh, in general, I, I am interested in the way that forms of knowledge are part of how we colonize people. Um, so my PhD, um, dissertation, for example, was about psychoanalysis as a form of colonial knowledge. Um, but this particular article came about because um, I was invited to give a keynote in Sweden in November of 2018, I think, um, where a group of management and organization scholars were 
wanted to gather together and talk about why did people in management and organization draw on literature as if it's some endlessly good, pure, liberating thing? So they wanted to, actually, they wanted to have the conversation. And that's something I've been, I've been working on ever since I became a student of post-colonial studies. So, so that there was a nice, there was a nice natural fit there. Um, and so the other keynote speakers there were management scholars, but they talked about um, history, for example, and um, ethnography, and how those those forms of knowledge are also uh, problematic. So it developed out of that that talk. Um, but it was a difficult piece to write um, because it because it was trying to bring a lot of different conversations. A lot of different strands of conversation about colonialism together um, between people who don't normally talk to each other. You know, literature scholars don't have a good reason to talk to management scholars and, and vice versa, really. Um, so that's become something that I'm working on more and more. Um, because those, those questions, it goes to the structural question you asked about, for me, in, in some ways. Because I think about all the energy and time and years that you know, people have spent writing about post-colonial theory and literature, and not talking about the way that literature departments are organized, and the fact that you don't have black and brown students in them or black and brown faculty in them. So, so how can, again, as we talked about before, you know, how can you split those things from each other? How can you talk about literature as colonialism and not talk about, well, how do we organize this thing and who is here and who gets to be an important voice? Mm, I agree. And I think some of the conversations that we've had as well is that you find individuals from certain disciplines, particularly in kind of like business, where they don't see their work as having like a colonial past or sustaining kind of forms of coloniality. So why do you feel like a kind of post-colonial approach to management studies is important? So uh, a couple of things about that. One, one to be very clear, which, um, which I do talk about in the, in the article, there are scholars who do post-colonial management studies um, and they do some really interesting work. And I think, you know, one, one kind of perhaps a bit more obvious reason, but key reason why it's important is um, we still live in a world constructed by colonialism. And so it's very important that people who teach about business, about management, about organization, are teaching their students to think about how that relates to practices of, of, of business and management. Um, it's a small, it's a small group of people inside management and organization studies, but it's it's um, it is becoming, I think it, I think it it has it has enough of a critical mass now to be something. But I think really there's kind of two reasons why I think it's important. One, I think it's important because, you know, when managers are being trained in cross-cultural communication, for example, they need to understand what the colonial and racial undertones of that are. That's, that's a sort of basic level. 
The other level, which is more kind of for, for the academics themselves, is, as you said, to understand that forms of knowledge have colonial logic built into them. And if you just think, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to use literature to um, free up my students and allow them to do something they couldn't do otherwise. That's problematic if you don't understand that actually literature has been used to colonize people. Um, anthropology is a colonial discipline. Um, sociology also has its own history and roots in <laughs> a very racist and colonial view of the world, right? Western knowledge, Western knowledge is still very much still very much operating in terms of logics and practices and methods that it hasn't thought through. Um, and that's that yeah I think that that is a that's something I would like to see now. I would like to see us really sort of turn more to, you know, well how are we teaching people these these subjects that we teach them? So you get a degree in sociology or literature and what do you know about the colonial background of your subject? And I picked up, um, you mentioned in the paper that the significance of literature as governmentality has never been lost on post-colonial scholars because post-colonial critics recognise the power of literature to colonise rather than liberate. Could you just talk a bit more about kind of what you mean by that? Because I feel like that was really just, it really just stood out for me. So this, I, this is a this is kind of a, a historical answer, but it, but it, I'll connect it up to the present <laughs> as best as I can. Um, English literature is a discipline that doesn't form in England, right? It's, people might be might naturally assume that well, of course we study English literature in Britain because that's our literature, and so we just study it. Um, but that's not why we study literature literature as a discipline came into being because of the British colonial project in India and that they needed to develop the characters and the ethics and the morals of in the Indian people they governed without putting a kind of, without, um, without changing their religion. And so they decided, well, let's teach them English literature because that way they'll become English, but they won't really sort of realize that they're becoming English. So at that most basic level, the formation of English literature as a subject that we study comes from a colonial need to govern colonized subjects. So that's one part of it. There's the historical beginning and you can say, well, that's, you know, that's, you know, 1830s, we're well past that now. It's not the same thing. But actually, and this is what I mean about practices and methods by which we study subjects. Um, many of the ways that we study literature now use the same techniques, right? We give a text to a student, we ask them to read it closely, and then we ask them to um, reflect on um, 
you know how the text is constructed and what kind of effect it's it, it, it is supposed to have and and to some degree you know when we talk about characters for example um, this is a thing that I encounter a lot in my classroom that <laughs> my students don't relate to this to the characters in the literature that I'm teaching them right the Indian African uh, Caribbean literature that they they kind of find the people not that they find them weird or, or or other or anything like that but they don't know how to relate to them that process of teaching people to relate to characters in novels that's easily hijacked into a into a, a colonial way of teaching people what you know what's a what's a good person what's a right action what's a kind thing to do what's an ethical thing to do um and so you know often when we teach i'm gonna use a different word now when you teach multicultural literature part of the point is that you teach people that so they'll understand and be tolerant and sympathetic of people who are different than them but you're using the same technique you're getting them to read literature to um, sympathize with the characters and understand, sometimes in some cases to say, oh, those people are just like me. Not to say, actually, those people are different than me. They come from a different cultural context. They have different ideas about the world. And I have to just learn that other people have their differences and it's not for me to relate to them or not relate to them. They have their own lives. They have their own universes. So, it begins in a, a, an actual colonial need, the discipline, but it carries on in practices that are that are training people. And I don't mean manipulating. I, I'm not trying to suggest that people are being hoodwinked in any way, um, but that people learn to do things with literature that reinforce a colonial point of view. Yeah. And do you feel like, in a sense, that also kind of taps into, like, just whiteness in general and just the system of whiteness and how we take kind of that as the default and that's why it's difficult for kind of to, like you say, like to identify with characters that aren't white because it's always just been seen as kind of the default setting. Do you think it kind of also, it all kind of ties into that as well? Yeah, I think it I think it does. And I think, you know, this is one of those places in the literature classroom, as you know, we were talking about this weird separation between colonialism and race. But when you're in the classroom, this is definitely one of the places where actually it is about race. Mm. It is about, well, can you have a, you know, can you have a, a, a black heroine who has these and these and these qualities? Can you have a love story between these people and have people kind of accept that yeah that's I felt that that was real and plausible to me mm. um and, and I can tell you <laughs> having taught you know literature for many years that there are many 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 times when students just say I don't buy it mm. I don't identify with it I don't relate to it and then you think okay so what <laughs> yeah when I when I was an undergraduate, I remember I had a seminar where I complained. We were reading, uh, we were actually reading a, a short story by Bharti Mukherjee, uh, Indian American writer, 
who I just, I just, I just hated the story, really. I just hated it. Um, and I was the only person of color in the room. And uh, I said, I spoke up in the, in the seminar discussion and said, I don't like this. And here's why I don't like it. And uh, I remember the professor saying, well, maybe it's not written for you. <laughs> I remember thinking, if an Indian American writer is not writing for me, you know, a person of Indian descent who's, who's been, you know, raised in the West, what does that mean? Who, who's writing for me? What can I say something about? What can I read? Um, I've, I've puzzled about that for many years afterwards because I thought, why? What does that mean? Mm. You know, if if you are a, a black British person and and somebody tells you that, oh well, you know, maybe Andrea Levy is not writing for you. What, how do you <laughs> how do you respond to that? I don't I don't know. I'm not sure. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> And I also picked up on how you kind of break down some of like the theoretical differences between post-colonialism and post-modernism. Could you perhaps like talk about that as well? And why was it important for you to kind of point that out in the paper? One of the reasons that came about in, in the paper was that um, post-modernism, post-structuralism, post-everything, right? Uh, it comes from this moment where um, people think, well, I understand what that does philosophically. It, it's to say that there are no grand narratives and, um, and, and things are more complexly part of, of, of their contexts and, and we don't have one story that we're trying to tell about things anymore. Um, and so, but so then within that, you don't necessarily, people don't necessarily understand what's the difference between postmodernism and post-structuralism and is post-colonialism just a variety of postmodernism, mm. um, sort of postmodernism for black and brown people, if you like. Um, and so people can go along reading postmodern, postmodern and post-structural theory and think that I don't need to worry about the post-colonial because the brown and black people are going to do that. And so what I wanted to do in the paper was to say partly that I know that you, those of you who are deeply engaged in postmodern and post-structural philosophy, understand about some of the basic critiques of Western philosophy that are being that are that are being made in those philosophical um, movements. But you don't understand what the history of colonialism and questions of race have to do with them. And, and for that, you need, you need post-colonialism, you need critical race theory, you need queer studies, you need feminist studies to some degree too. Um, so it was to say that, it, it was really to say that just because you understand about postmodernism. It doesn't mean that you've understood the power dynamics that post-colonialists and critical race theorists are trying to draw attention to. That, that there is a power knowledge formation that those, those people are trying to do. Because, and I took my cue there from, from a, a literary theorist called Linda Hutchin, who really was the person who articulated this, who said, you know, 
it's very easy to be postmodern and never to do anything about changing. Kind of in, in, a, in a way, what we've been talking about, right? You recognize that there's difference, that there's complexity, but you don't actually change anything. You don't have an analysis of power. And if you don't have an analysis of power, you don't have to change anything. To be fair, there are some varieties of post-colonial studies that probably function very much like that too. But the kind that I'm trying to do at least is, is very much embedded in, in, in an analysis of power. Thank you. So just going back to talking about English Lit curricula, like I understand like many other disciplines, there are still areas that kind of fail to reflect the diversity in people and perspectives that we see in society. And there's also areas that kind of continue to perpetuate whiteness and obviously forms of colonialism. And I thought we could dedicate this last segment of the podcast to discussing what it means to kind of decolonize English lit and what can be done to kind of make that a possible future. So just as a first question, in what ways is English lit still very a very much kind of colonial discipline? I think this is a locational question too, right? This, this also depends on, on the location where you're teaching English literature. And, and because of colonialism, of course, English literature is taught in very many places. Um, I think, and, the, and so the reason I say that is, is partly the distinction we talked about earlier, which is, you know, in Canada, English is still a colonial discipline because Canadian students take degrees in English literature. That's odd. They should be taking degrees in Canadian literature or better, they should be taking degrees in indigenous literature, right? If, if we think of, of, of that form of, of understanding literature in relation to the place and the formations that it comes from, then that is what Canadians should be studying. In the UK, of course, then, as we've talked about, it's different because, okay, British literature belongs here. And um, so then, you know, how, how do you decolonize it? And um, partly you do that by teaching different kinds of texts. But I, for me, I'm, and this is what I've been thinking about really mostly for the last 10 years and, and in my classroom in particular, um, it's about changing the way you teach those texts. So as I just said to you, you know, when we teach literature, what are we teaching people to pay attention to and why? What is, what is it that that's supposed to be doing? And where in those techniques are we still hiding or are better, are unaware of how that is a colonial way of thinking about what you should do with literature? So I gave the example of, you know, using, I'm sure you've experienced, I've done the same thing. <laughs> Right. Like you're going on holiday somewhere and somebody says, oh, read a book about that place. You'll you know, it'll help you enjoy when you get there kind of thing. And yeah, it does. But it's also a kind. It's also part of that that whole formation of knowledge that we have literature about other people so that we can know them. 
learn about them, figure out what to do with them. Um, and that's so embedded in literature that it, it sounds a little bit weird to say, well, let's do something else with it. And, you know, somebody could well say to me, well, what is it you want to do with literature, Mernalini? Why do you want people to read it? What do you want them to do with it? And I wouldn't honestly be able to tell you because I've been trained to read literature that way myself, right? And so part of what I am doing as a teacher nowadays is trying to work out, why do I want them to do that? What am I asking them to do? And what should I ask them to do instead? Um, so part of that work, I think, is actually about making people uncomfortable, to be honest, in the classroom, to say, okay, you didn't relate to that person. And I've so I've never said this to a class, but I'm thinking it now, right, to say, okay, you didn't relate to that character. So what? Now what do we do? And kind of going into those uncomfortable moments and think, all right, well, why did we want to do that with that text? And what could we do instead? And as I said, I don't have an answer, but I think that's, I think the, the decolonizing there is in what you do in the classroom and what you are, how you're teaching your students to relate to the object of knowledge mm. that they're there to study with you. Yeah. Does so, that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. <laughs> I was just going to say, what does that mean deconstructing the canon entails then? What does it kind of, what does it mean? Yeah, I think <laughs> always a really difficult question to answer as well, because, you know, kind of in classical, kind of classical post-colonial studies. Uh, so, you know, work that goes back to people like Edward Said. Um, you don't necessarily need to be teaching anything different. So, you know, Saeed reads, you know, Jane Austen and, and, and Joseph Conrad and says, here's, a, here's where the colonialism appears in these classic texts. And that's a completely legitimate strategy to say, we're going to read the same things. We're just going to read them with a different perspective. Then I think, and I think here again, we get into that, that difficulty between colonialism and race. The other answer to this is that no, you just need to read whole other kinds of things. You need to read texts in which um, black and indigenous and people of color are represented and they're represented in ways that are you know, humanizing and not dehumanizing. And you need to just see that literature is capable of doing other things. This is this would be the literature's liberation, right? Um, uh, so I think, and I, so I think ideally, of course, all of those strategies, you need to be using all of those strategies at the same time. And that's, it, it's, it's challenging. It's challenging. It's challenging to departments, again, kind of organizationally, if you've structured the degree that your students are studying on the canon, then your options are either to do keep doing the canon, but in a different way, or to kind of 
you know, completely start again and 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 do an intense structural um, change. And as we've already discussed, you know, that's not a that's not people's go to answer, right? They don't really want to do that. Um, yeah. But I think I think that is changing. I think that is changing in British universities because there are so many. You know, like um, Goldsmith, for example, has has this you know, MA in Black British writing, and so there are places where you can go and study study literature. You can study different literature. Whether you study it differently, I don't know, but yeah. Um, what else do you feel like lecturers can do to kind of decolonize or indigenize their pedagogy and practice? I think one of the easiest ways, genuinely, is to use examples of examples by, by non-Western writers from the global South, uh, black writers, indigenous writers, I think genuinely to use those examples in situations where the content is not about race or colonialism. It's, it's, it's to remind people that actually this is always relevant. This is something you should always be paying attention to. Um, it's because you know, when you're using an example in a lecture, <laughs> there's, a, there's a much greater range of things that you could use as your example than most people do. And I include myself in that. I have also my own go-to things. And it's a good challenge, I think, pedagogically to say, no, think of, think of other ways that you can bring this material. You, you can normalise this material being in your classroom. Absolutely. And I think this ties really well into my final question for you, which is what is something you'd like to see happen or see develop within higher education in the next 10 years? You know, when I when I read the questions, when you sent them to me, I, I really struggled with that one. Um, <laughs> I think everyone does, to be fair. <laughs> because, I mean, there are so many things and and they're so I mean some of them I think are, are, are obvious I think you know one of the things that is very disturbing in general in higher education is just the increasing marketization yeah. of, of education and and the effect that has on the relationships between students and, and teachers um, so when I thought about it in that way I thought about what I one thing I would really, really I would like to see is a move towards um, I don't even know how to put this. <laughs> um, a move towards reconstructing possibility of a genuine pedagogical relationship between teachers and students mm. I think that's really been eroded I think it's being eroded all the time and that is the part of my job that I absolutely love when I know that I can go into a classroom and have a real conversation with my students and they're not worrying about their grade and they're not worrying about how much money it's costing them to sit in that classroom, but they're actually not, not even so much paying attention to the material, but, but 
willing to trust me Mm. to engage in a relationship with me where we can get to know each other and I can I can figure out okay this is what you need from this educational situation and I can do that I can I can adjust myself to that because that's what you need to learn right now that kind of that possibility of being able to pay attention to your students and for them to be able to pay attention to the learning relationship I think that's disappeared Mm. in many places one of the things that I really treasure about my relationship with my students in Canada is that we have much more freedom in our classrooms in Canada in universities and so it's still possible I can I can have a conversation with a student and it can carry on you know, for two, three, four years, I have, have quite a few students that I still have those conversations with now. They've graduated and gone, and mm. but there's a real, there's a connection about, about that information there. And I feel like we're heading into an era where that just won't be possible anymore. Mm. Um, and that really worries me yeah thank you and I think as a student as well like I appreciate your answer a lot Miss V <laughs> you, is, is it your sense that that's what's happening to that student teacher relationship too I think that well definitely especially like I've noticed just during the pandemic as well like that's already just kind of put like a huge strain on kind of the relationships that you get to have with um you know, your lecturers and things like that. But I think coming from sociology, I've luckily I've been able to have like quite a strong relationship with kind of all of my lecturers and I get to have those kind of conversations, even if it is kind of like an uncomfortable conversation. Like I do feel like there is the environment is kind of I feel like it's, it feels like a safe enough space for me to kind of hold those conversations. And I feel like I've been lucky to be able to kind of experience that. But I know like from talking to kind of my peers and things like that, like it's definitely not something that happens across the disciplines. And I think, you know, just to hear like you as an educator to say that, and you know, it's something that's on your mind as well, like that it's, I, I appreciate it. And I know like, I'm sure like there are other lecturers that feel exactly the same way. I think that's really important what you said, you know, part of what is important about that relationship is that it allows you to have uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. And so, you know, what I described earlier where I I could say to a student, so what? I mean, (laughs) I can only do that. We can only have that real moment of education if we have that relationship. Yeah. And if we don't have that relationship, we can't. And then everything, you know, all the possibilities shrink. And um, we're living in a world where we're going to need more education. Renata Lee, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. It's been so nice just getting to know a bit more about yourself and just your take on, um, you know, coloniality and kind of decolonial work and just, you know, having the opportunity to talk about your recent work as well. And I highly recommend both students and educators give your paper a thorough read. So links on where to access the article. (laughs) And links on where to access the article will be added in the description. I really appreciate that, Kyra. Thank you. (laughs) 
To find out more information, access our tools or get in touch, visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash psj.